we are in the book of Exodus, chapter 32 and 33. So if you would turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus 32. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you hear our cry and that you are near to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, even when we're not what we should be, you don't leave us or forsake us. And as we look in your word tonight, we just pray that you would encourage us and help us to see you in a greater way. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're going through the book of Exodus, it's important to remember the overarching theme of the Bible. What's the the message of the Bible? Some might read the law and think that, okay, God's requiring me to live under the law. But the book of Galatians tells us that the law is our schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. The, The law is to show us that we cannot fulfill righteousness on our own. We cannot live up to a system of rules and hit it out of the park and then be able to enter into to God's presence. We need a savior. So that's very evident in our study tonight because God has just given the law. It's fresh off the printing press. God has wrote it, the Ten Commandments. And while he's giving it to Moses, the nation of Israel is grossly breaking the law. They're grossly rebelling against God. Their worship has become displaced. So we begin in chapter 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Really? Moses is gone 40 days, 40 nights, and they're like, we're, we don't know what's going to happen to him. He may never come back. So we need you, Aaron, to make some gods for us because we're without our leader. So this provokes an interesting question. Consider it. Is what would your Christian life look like if your Moses is not around? Because it seems like a lot of times we struggle in our relationship with the Lord when that mentor, that parent, that spouse is not in our lives and there is opportunity, what are we going to do? Are we going to serve the Lord or are we going to serve ourselves or serve false gods? If you have hung everything on your mentor, on your Moses, then what if God takes that Moses out of your life Are you going to go down this same road as the children of Israel? As valuable as a Moses is in your life, your faith needs to be in Jesus. Amen? You need to be a follower of Jesus. You need to be a disciple of Jesus where you have decided, I'm going to follow Christ. So if your mentor's in your life, great. If your mentor's not in your life, great. But I'm choosing to follow the Lord. I'm choosing to follow him. But it really can highlight where we're at with the Lord when the Moses is gone. When God takes that Moses away permanently or temporarily, it'll reveal our maturity or lack thereof. And it's amazing how quickly they turn to idolatry. How quickly that the cry of the children of Israel is, Aaron, we want you to make us a God. Make us a God that we will serve. And our hearts are prone to our idolatry. 
Our hearts are prone to put something above the Lord instead of serving the one true living God. And it doesn't take very much to move us to that place where we're serving a a false God. In verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all of the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands, and he fashioned with it an engraving tool, and made it a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why would Aaron go along with this? Why would he decide that he was going to fashion this false god out of their jewelry, out of their earrings? Where did they get the jewelry? When they were leaving Egypt, the Egyptians gave gold to them, gave precious items to them, jewelry to them. So that's where they got these earrings of gold. Remember, Aaron's been along the process from the very beginning. Moses felt inadequate because of his speech impediment. He wanted someone to be his spokesperson, so God sent Aaron to come alongside Moses. Aaron was there for each of the plagues. Aaron was there for the Red Sea. Aaron was there from the manna from heaven, the cloud that led them by day and the pillar of fire by night. And what's probably most shocking about this is that Aaron says, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he takes all that God has done, that he's seen, that he's experienced, that he's witnessed, God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt. And now he says, this golden calf, that I've created out of gold. This is your God that delivered you out of Egypt. There's been a lot of speculation why the golden calf. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says, some commentators have suggested that this represented the Egyptian bull god, Apis, but this seems unlikely because Apis was not worshipped as an image. Even so, the bull symbolized fertility and sexual strength. So there's this question, were they trying to copy the Egyptian god, but the Egyptian bull god, they never formed an image. But it's possible that they got the idea of a bull from from Egypt. Who knows where they came up with this? Who knows why they put a focus on this? Why would they trade in worshiping the one true living God for this golden calf? What a tremendous downgrade. This calf can't hear, this calf can't answer, this calf can't save, this calf can't stand up against Pharaoh the way the one true living God did. And any time that we step into idolatry, we start to worship something more than Jesus Christ, it's a tremendous downgrade. But at the heart of idolatry, I think, is an idol can't hold you accountable, but God does. So if you don't want accountability, it's easy to say, well, I'll trade in a one true living God and I'll start worshiping this golden calf because this golden calf can't give me any type of accountability. Idolatry, in some level, is a worship of self. It's self getting to run rampant and run wild and do whatever you'd like. Verse 6, so Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is the feast to the Lord. So using similar verbiage where God had given feasts to the children of Israel, now this is a feast to 
the Lord to this false god. Then they rose early on the next day. They're excited. Offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Cole writes in his commentary, the verb translated play suggests sexual play in Hebrew and therefore is probable to understand drunken orgies. So as they're worshiping this golden calf, they're engaging in sexual sin. And why is it that idolatry and sexual sin go hand in hand? But we see this throughout the Old Testament that idolatry and sexual sin go hand in hand. In the book of Numbers, we see Balaam being sent by Balak, the Moabites, to curse the children of Israel. Each time that he cursed the children of Israel, God turned it to a blessing. God's ability to take something that's meant for evil and turn it for good. But then Balaam instructs the Moabites, the way to really get the Israelites is through sexual sin. So they go in and they introduce their idols and with it the sexual sin. And Israel takes the bait and God sends a plague upon the Israelites where 24,000 are died in the midst of that plague. All of the false gods during the king's period, Baal, all of that was connected to sexual sin. These false gods also then they would come in sexual sin to worship these false gods. So throughout the Bible, idolatry and sexual sin go hand in hand. So there's a message here for us in this, is if we get off our eyes off of the Lord and we lose sight of our worship of him, it's going to be really easy to go into sexual sin. And if we're in sexual sin, it identifies that we have a worship problem, a worship problem. As we worship the Lord, part of worshiping the Lord is in our sexuality. Is to say, this is what God has designed for sexuality. So I'm going to walk in obedience to the Lord. Paul would write and say that learning how to possess our vessels for sexual integrity and to walk in sexual integrity is the will of God. So we're worshiping the Lord in sexual integrity Or there's the lack of worship when we walk into sexual sin. So sex really isn't about sex. So if we're struggling with sexual sin, we're struggling with a worship problem. We've got to get back to worshiping the Lord. How quickly it was for the children of Israel, once they stopped worshiping the Lord and start worshiping this golden calf, that they entered into sexual sin. If you find yourself in sexual sin, man, God has the power to forgive and transform come back to him. I think of the woman that was caught in adultery. She's caught in sexual sin. By the law, she should have been stoned. By the law, her life should have been over. And where was the guy in the equation? They only bring the gal. Last time I checked, it takes two to tango, right? But here comes this woman who's caught in adultery, and Jesus begins to write on the ground. And as he wrote on the ground, her accusers left from oldest to youngest. Jesus says, he that's without sin cast the first stone. What was he writing on the ground? We don't know. But probably stuff that was incriminating from the oldest to the youngest. Maybe a date, a time, a specific person. And like, man, I have sin in this area of sexual integrity. And one by one, they left. 
Jesus then looks at her, the one who could bring righteous judgment upon her, and says, where are your accusers? Then he says, go your way and sin no more. That's the heart of God. Forgiveness. Go your way and sin no more. God to provide forgiveness for sexual sin and also the power to be able to transform our lives. But be careful. Once we go for the golden calf, we're going to go for all kinds of wickedness in our lives. Once we start to have our worship displaced, depravity really takes over in our hearts and our minds. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So God sees and God knows and says, Moses, you got to get down there. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. God says they've quickly gotten out of the way. They've made for themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So God's hot. He's hot in righteous anger. He says, let me judge this stiff-necked people. Every once in a while, you'll probably see me walking around the church, and I can't really turn my neck. So I'll do one of these and I'll turn this way. My, my neck goes, goes stiff, right? So what's God saying to the children of Israel is that they're stiff-necked. They're not willing to turn in obedience to, to the Lord. And God's ready to judge them. And anytime we see God's wrath, it points to how thankful we should be that Jesus took the wrath of God for us on the cross. If it wasn't for Jesus then we would be experiencing this kind of wrath. But Jesus took that wrath for us. What an offer to Moses. Hey, I'll fry these guys and I'll make a new nation. They're going to be the Mosesites, right? Israelites are done and they're going to be the Mosesites. Moses pleads with the Lord and we see Moses as an intercessor here. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, And said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses in his prayer first says, well, what will the Egyptians think? It's a good argument, isn't it? Here's the Egyptians, and they're going, oh, look, God delivered them from Egypt miraculously just to kill them out in the desert, just to kill them out in the wilderness. God, what's your testimony going to be amongst unbelievers. Then remembering your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Israel, Jacob. God, you made these promises to them. And then he camps even deeper on the promises of God as he is interceding before the Father. And in our prayer life, especially for those that maybe deserve God's judgment, 
interceding on behalf of someone who doesn't know the Lord or has a hard heart or has turned their back on the Lord to talk to the Lord in regards to God's promises and his character and his nature towards them. So verse 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. God relented. The, The word relented means to move to another course of action. So God moves to another course of action because of the prayers of Moses. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 22, it says that God looks for a person who will stand in the gap in behalf of his people. And God found such a man in Moses. Remember Abraham when he was talking with God, when God had determined judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham's, well, what if there's 50 righteous? And begins to ask of the Lord to be merciful on Lot's behalf. So this gives us a good picture of intercession, a good picture of of coming before the Lord. God's sovereign and he does what he pleases and somehow in his sovereignty, he also asks that we would humble ourselves and pray. And as we humble ourselves and pray, then God moves according to those those prayers. So the question's asked, well, what if Moses didn't pray? I don't know. Moses did pray. Was it God that moved on Moses' heart to pray? In the end, God's will is done, but the example for us is to be willing to pray, to really cry out to the Lord on behalf of others. In verse 15, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, and the one side and the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So, so here's Moses with the law of God. God's written it with his own hand, but yet not good news. As the commands are given, they've already grossly been broken. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. So Joshua is traveling with Moses and he hears this noise and he's reporting it to Moses. But he said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. What's amazing to me is how quick that the Israelites move into idolatry, but how much it's celebrated. I mean, they're singing and dancing and entering into all of this sexual sin and and drunkenness. And church, please don't be deceived by the celebration, quote unquote, of the world. Because those that don't know Christ as their Savior, they're singing and dancing and engaging in sexual sin, and they're saying, come join the party. You're missing out. Oh, you're studying the Bible on a Wednesday night? Why in the world would you be studying the Bible on a Wednesday night? You need to be in this drunken sexual party. But the scripture tells us that there's pleasure in sin for a season, but then the consequences come, don't they? But then sin bites hard. So though there's this moment of pleasure, it's going to lead to great destruction and great pain. Have you ever regretted holiness in your life? Choosing to walk with the Lord. But we've all regretted when we've been deceived by the song of the world. So it's a fake facade. Everything's good. We're having this party. We're going to drink and make love. But then there's the mourning and there's the hangover and there's the consequence of of sin. So verse 19, so it was as soon as he came near the camp that he drew the calf 
that he saw the calf, excuse me, and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So you can picture Moses as he's coming into this drunken, sinful party, and he breaks the tablets of God. And this is significant that the law of God has been broken even before it was given. We need a savior. The law of God cannot save us from our sins. What does Moses do right away? Is he burns this false god, this golden calf. If this golden calf was a real god, don't you think he could defend himself? But because he's not, because he's made of hands, it's easy for Moses to burn him in the fire Then Moses, he scatters the water and made the children of Israel drink it. So he melts down this golden calf and then he makes them drink it. Why in the world would Moses do this? Because sometimes we've got to taste the reality of our sin. Sometimes we've got to taste it. God forgives us, but we still need to taste it so that we understand the depth of his forgiveness and we also produces in us a desire to not want to go back under that bitterness of of sin. Moses then begins to confront Aaron in this righteous anger. So here's Aaron's response. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that they shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of them. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and cast it into the fire. And this calf came out. (laughs) Really? You just threw in the jewelry and then out came the golden calf. A lot of times we don't really want to take ownership of our sin. We don't really want to state, yeah, I did this and I'm responsible for it. I'm not really sure how this happened, right? is Aaron's response. It seems to me that Aaron is motivated by wanting to please the people. The Bible calls it the fear of man, that the fear of man is a snare. Moses wants to please God. So Moses comes in, and he's not concerned with what the people think. He's like, this idol's not right, and I'm going to to deal with it. But Aaron wants to, to please others. If we put the esteem of people above wanting to please God, it's going to lead us down a dangerous path. It's going to lead us down this road that Aaron went on. Verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron did not restrain them, to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. So the Sons of Levi are like, yeah, we're with you, Moses. We're with the Lord. And he said to them, thus says the God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the ones that weren't for the Lord, go and kill those ones that 
are in compromise that are in sin. So the sons of Levi did according to the, the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So the day the law was given, it was also broken. The wages of sin is death, 3,000 die. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit was given to the church at Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. The law brings death, but the Spirit brings life. Christ's death and resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit brings life. If it wasn't for Jesus, this is the way that sin would be dealt with in our lives. This is the way sin is dealt with through the law. The message of the law is if you fall short, then there's, there's death. So 3,000 die that day. Then Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin. So now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have created, committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Wow, what tremendous love for Moses. Moses is saying, God, please forgive them. I know they've committed a great sin. Moses isn't making excuses. He's not trying to justify this away. He's like, this is a great sin. But God, would you please forgive? And I'm even willing for my name to be blot out of your book in order for the children of Israel to be forgiven. Paul prays something similar in the book of Romans. And it's amazing love of God for those that they serve that they're like, wow, I'm willing even to surrender my salvation in order that the children of Israel could not be taken out of your book. In verse 33, And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So please pay attention because you could read this one verse, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book and go, there's no way that I could be saved. There's no way that I could be the child of God. But we know the New Testament. We know the promise of Christ that we're saved by grace through faith. It's through what Christ has done that we have salvation, that we have everlasting life. But remember, this is the message of the law. The message of the law is if you're sinned, then there's, there's no luck for you. We're going to go into chapter 33. Chapter 33 and 34 really flow together, but we'll only get through 33 tonight. You guys doing all right? It's been a long day. I don't see too many people sleeping. It's good. Seventh inning stretch right here. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants, I will give it. God reaffirms his promise to the children of Israel. God's gracious and long-suffering. God hears the prayers of Moses. He says, all right, I'm not going to destroy all of you. You are going to make it to the promised land. And I will give my angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, 
and the Hivite and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is interesting. God's saying, you're going to get to the promised land. I'm going to send my angel to defend your enemies, but I'm not going up with you guys. I'm not going to be in your presence. Because if I was in your camp, I would completely consume you because of your sin, because you're stiff-necked. And the people hear this. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. So the people get it. Even though they're promised the promised land, they're mourning that they're not going to have the presence of God in their midst any longer. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. I could come up I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Verse 7, Moses again intercedes on behalf of the children of Israel. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. (laughs) Sometimes we just need to take our tent outside of the daily routine to have a time to wait upon the Lord. Maybe it's a drive. You drive up into the mountains. You drive out east. Maybe it's a walk. I'm going to take a walk. Maybe you're able to have a short getaway and say, I'm going to take some time to seek the Lord. Jesus spent much time alone with the Father. And here, Moses, in the midst of all of this, is very wise to say, I'm going to pitch my tent outside of camp and meet with the Lord. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle meeting. There's a lot to learn from this, because they're watching Moses meet with the Lord, and it gets their interest but they're not choosing to meet with the Lord. And sometimes we can look at someone else's spiritual life or spiritual vitality. We go, that's inspiring, but we don't enter into God's presence ourselves. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of the cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. And the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door And all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Moses had this amazing fellowship with God, had this amazing relationship with God, that God would talk to Moses the way that a man would talk with his friend. And of all of the attributes of Moses, this stands out, doesn't it? The way that Moses would depend upon the Lord, draw near to the Lord. Moses' prayer life, his friendship, his fellowship with God, he was was the friend of God. So in these meetings, God's talking to Moses the way that a man would, would talk with his friend. And here's Joshua just waiting outside of the tent. Joshua is going to be the next leader of the children of Israel, and you can see why. Joshua has a hunger for the presence of God. In church, I just want to encourage you that God is near, and that God 
wants to dwell with you, dwell with me. He wants us to be at a place where we share our heart with him. And more importantly, we stop and let God share his heart with us. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony of our lives? Would be our fellowship with God. That those who know us and spend time with us would go, man, they had fellowship with God. They spent time with the Lord. The disciples in the book of Acts, it says that they were untrained, but they could tell that they'd spent time with Jesus. They hadn't spent time in the local seminary, but they had spent time with Jesus, and it was, was evident. Moses had that deep fellowship with God. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. So Moses is saying, Lord, you've said that you're going to see us into the promised land, but who are you going to send with me? Yet you have said, I know, you're, I know you by name, and you've also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I might find grace in your sight and consider this nation is your people. Moses is saying, I want to know the way. I want to know you. Would you be gracious to me? Notice the response, and this is worth highlighting. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God says, okay, Moses, I'm not only going to give you the promised land, but I'm going to go with you. I'm going to give you my presence. And in my presence, you are going to find rest. Moses has a really difficult job. In the wilderness, the children of Israel constantly complaining. Normally, they're complaining against him. Moses wouldn't have a lot of rest in the wilderness leading this complaining multitude. Maybe you feel like Moses. Do you feel like you're leading a complaining multitude? Do you feel like things are pretty sparse? It's a difficult time. It's a time that's testing you. You would describe it as a wilderness experience. And God's presence is promised to us. Part of the new covenant of God's grace is Jesus says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. We're never going to go through a day alone. We're never going to go through an experience that's apart from God's presence. He's with us. And it's his presence then that provides us rest. Provides us rest. This verse really spoke to me probably about a month ago as I was reading it in my devotions. That it's God's presence that's going to be my rest. That it's his presence that is going to be my, my refuge. Moses didn't have the opportunity to go on a Caribbean cruise to get rest, right? Moses didn't have the opportunity to call in sick. Moses didn't have the opportunity to get a guest preacher or guest teacher, right? Like there's, he can't escape this. He can't escape where God has called him and the people that God has put him around him. But yet he has God's presence, and God's presence will, will be his rest. Maybe that's exactly what you need to hear tonight. The rest we crave is found in the presence of God. Maybe you came to church tonight just go, I need some rest. I need a vacation. I need to get away from these people, right? These difficult people in my, in my life. And God's saying, 
I'm your rest. Come into my presence. And even though God's presence is promised to us and he's with us, we can enter into his presence through prayer. We can enter into his presence through worship. We can enter into presence through reading his word. We can enter into his presence with the fellowship of believers. But hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are labor and have, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 15, then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. I love this. Moses is saying, we're not just interested in the promised land. We're not just interested in the results. We're not just interested in getting out of this trial. God, if your presence is not going to go with us, then let us die in the wilderness. Then don't take us out from this place. That's how much that Moses craved and he longed for the presence of God. And is that our heart as well? Is that where we're at? Was we're saying, God, I need your presence. And that we're lost. Like we're, we're lost if your presence does not go with us. I pray this a lot for us as a church. Like if God's presence is not with us, game over. Let's lock up the doors, right? Let's, let's give the building away to, to someone else. Because what are we doing if God's presence is not with us, right? But if God's presence is with us, then let's continue to move forward. But God, we don't want to move forward without your presence. I hope that Rocky Mountain Calvary is a place that when you come and worship and you study the word and you fellowship together, you sense the reality of God's presence, you know? I hope that when you pull up into the parking lot, you sense God, God's presence, because without his presence, what are we doing? It, we've probably all been to a church or been part of a church where we go, everything seems to be right on the outside, but I don't sense God's presence here. It's spiritually dead, right? And God could do that if he wants to Rocky Mountain Calvary where he just kind of says, okay, I'm done. I'm done using Rocky Mountain Calvary. I'm done blessing Rocky Mountain Calvary, my presence is not going to be manifest there. And the Lord's shutting down our church at that point, right? Because it's his presence that makes our church alive. It's the reality that God is in our midst. And so we desperately are dependent upon the presence of God. We desperately need the presence of God in our lives uh, moving forward. This is a great thing to pray in our lives individually and to pray over our families. Like, Lord, please, you're with us, but we need you to be with us. <laughs> please go before us. Please manifest your presence. Please walk with us as we journey through, through life. Verse 16. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. This is what separates us from those that don't know the Lord, is that God's presence is with us. That's what Moses is declaring. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. God says yes. He says, yes, I will allow my presence to go with you. Moses could have easily stopped at this point. But in verse 18, he said, please show me your glory. 
God, I want to see your glory. Request to see God's glory. God's going to say yes to this request of Moses. Now, if I'm Moses, remember, this is just off the heels of the whole golden calf thing. I might be praying, Lord, could you raise up a new leader? I'm going to resign. I'm going non-profit at this point. Prophet Moses, non-profit. You'll get it on the way home. <laughs> or, Lord, could you just please get us into the promised land? Like we're, I'm tired of wandering around out here. This is hard and it's difficult. And Let's get the show on the road. No need to be out in the wilderness any longer than, than necessary. But Moses doesn't pray for things to be easier for him, as easy as that would be. But he says, God, I want to know you, and I want to know your glory. And this word glory in the Hebrew, it's kabod, and it implies weight and substance. So, I want to know what really matters. I want to know the weight and substance that comes from, from who you are. What if we made that our request tonight instead of saying, Lord, I need a breakthrough. God, I need things to be easier. Let's speed things up and get to the promised land. Or I'm done. Someone else can have this responsibility. Thank God, I want to see your glory. Remember, Jesus taught us that if we pray in his name, that he will grant it to us. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray according to the character and nature of God. Is it according to God's heart to reveal more of his glory to us? Absolutely. I think God will answer this prayer if our heart is to know him in a, in a greater way. Verse 19, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live because of our sin, because of Moses' sin. This is reserved for us when we get to heaven and, and we're glorified. And the Lord said, here's a place by me and you shall stand on the rock so it shall be while my glory passes by I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my backside but my face shall not be seen the idea of the backside is the afterglow hey you're going to see the afterglow of my my glory now please stay tuned because God specifically is going to reveal his glory to Moses in his character and nature in chapter 34, and it's a, a wonderful declaration of who God is. So, so read ahead. We'll, we'll cover that next week and, and looking at God's glory revealed. For us tonight, what's the golden calf in our life? You know, Is there an idol that we're so quick to erect, that we're so quick to build and to, to worship? Are we at a place where we want to ask God to reveal his glory? Are you in the wilderness? If you're like me and I'm in the wilderness, it's like, okay, it's hot, it's sandy, it's dry. Lord, can we get this trial over with? But sometimes we need to sit in the hot sand, like Moses, wait, pitch our tent, Wait upon him, draw near to him, and say, God, I want to see your glory. Many times it's in the midst of those wilderness experiences that God meets us and we're able to experience his glory.
And throughout this chapter, it shows us our need for the cross, our need for the cross. I don't know about you, but I couldn't really imagine living in a community of God's people where it's like, okay, you blew it. Are you for God or against God? Time to get out the swords. Uh, We're just going to kill people at church tonight, right? Like, that's intense. Like, what we read tonight, it's intense. God's hot anger, his, his hot wrath upon the children of Israel, they deserved it. They were stick, stiff-necked. Here they are worshiping this golden calf, but God's hot. He, he's mad in his, his righteous anger. And for those of us that have maybe been believers for a while, we can look at the cross of Christ and think that we've got it all figured out. But God's anger was hot towards me because of my sin, and he was just in that. And Jesus is my atonement. Jesus took the wrath for me upon the cross. Jesus is the ultimate mediator. He's the ultimate intercessor. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He took my sin upon himself, and my sin deserved death. Paid the price So that instead of being an object of God's wrath, I'm an object of God's favor. I'm the son of God. I'm the child of God. All my sins are forgiven. I'm robed in Christ's righteousness. The idea of reading the book of Exodus is not, oh, look at the Israelites, how bad they are. I could see why God would be mad at them. I'm kind of mad at them too, right? What a bunch of morons. All right, amen. Praise the Lord go on with our night. No, we see ourselves in this story. We see ourselves in this idolatry. And we understand, oh Lord, I'm so thankful for Christ. And when we understand the grace and the forgiveness of Christ, then it moves us towards holiness. It moves us to say, God, I want to serve you. And God empowers us to be able to serve the Lord. And grace and the work of the Spirit does far more than the law ever could. We say, Lord, I want to live for you, and I want to serve you. So as we take communion tonight, let's rejoice in the cross. Let's pray that God would reveal his glory to us. Would you stand with me, and let's let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would reveal your glory to us, that we could understand you in a greater way, your character and your nature, the height and the depth and the width of your love. And for those of us that are going through a trial, a wilderness, a time of loss, God, in your grace, would you show us your glory? Would your presence be our rest? And we enter into your presence. Jesus, we come to you to experience your rest. God, we thank you that you are with us, that you gather with us when we join together, but would you be gracious to manifest your presence in the life of our church? Through all the different times that we gather, would you, Jesus, be the center? And Jesus, we thank you for your work upon the cross. If it wasn't for your death, your blood that was shed, your resurrection, we would be an object of, of your wrath. But we're so thankful that you've given us your favor and your forgiveness. So God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.